Hello, everyone. Welcome to Health Formation, the podcast where we give you health and wellness news to use. This is Katie. I am your host, and I'm here with Marcus. Hey, guys. It's been a long time, but we're back. It has been a long time, and it is. I take the full blame for it. It was a heck of a semester, and we could not even come up with one time to get on here and talk. Yeah. We had a lot going on. So we thought that it would be very timely and very informative to tell you everything that we know about the COVID vaccine as it so stands. And I've just been doing as much possible research and reading about it that I can. And Marcus actually presented a presentation on it today at Duke. So we feel like we can give you some good info. I will say, just from my own perspective, like I was pretty hesitant to get it at first. And I have not gotten it yet just because I am a healthcare worker, but I'm not necessarily in the front lines of people with COVID every day. Um, So I have not yet gotten it, but I do feel better about it the more that I read about it. Um, And I just am here to present you as unbiased of information as I can. I don't know if you want to comment on that. I'll pick off of that. I kind of felt the same way. I'd say within the last month, my perspective has really changed. I was big against waiting and kind of seeing how everything would pan out. But the more and more, like you said, evidence I read and the research that's gone into it, I feel a little bit more comfortable. Actually, I feel a lot more comfortable with getting the vaccine as soon as I'm available. And I've had a few preceptors and other faculty that I work with have gotten the vaccine already. And nobody, it's only the first dose, so that's not usually when the big side effects occur. But nobody's complained about anything other than a little bit of muscle soreness, which is pretty common with any type of injection. So I think that actually transitions perfectly into the first thing that I wanted to talk about, which is informed consent. Um, and I think that this is an important topic for any time you are taking a medication or putting anything into your body. And basically what informed consent is, is that you are presented with information about something. You have an opportunity to ask questions about it to a healthcare provider that you trust. So hopefully that is your, the healthcare provider that you choose to receive your care from, that you have a trusting relationship with them. And then they answer your questions, and then you make an informed decision on whether or not you want to receive that product. I just think it's important because a lot of times there seems to be like a lot of bullying going on around this vaccine, Um, and it's kind of on both sides. It's like completely polarized of just like get the vaccine or don't get the vaccine. And I'm just here to present you information to help you with your informed consent process. And I think that, you know, if you have questions, you should ask them. And it does not, I've grown to really hate the term anti-vaxxer. If you, just because you have questions about something that you want to, that's getting injected in your arm does not make you an anti-vaxxer. It makes you an educated person who's trying to learn about something before you receive the product. Yeah, I think that is also something that's super important that people feel that they have the autonomy to choose whether or not they get treatment, no matter what the doctor says or the pharmacist says or the nurse's opinion or anybody that goes into the care ultimately it comes down to what the patient wants and that's that's really what we're here for as healthcare providers is to care for the patient as best we can so as of right now we have two vaccines that are approved under EUA or emergency use authorization for administration the american people Um, So that's the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine. So what that means is that we do not have any fully FDA-approved vaccines at this time. We have vaccines that are under emergency use or EUA approval. So the process for that is that the drug company, so that was Pfizer, and then subsequently two weeks later, Moderna, presented all the information from their trial that they've had ongoing since the summer to a panel of people. They present all the information and the panel goes through all that information and then they make a recommendation to the FDA if they think that this should go under um, emergency use. Um, And so for the Pfizer vaccine, it got voted 17 
to four to with one abstention. Um, I'm not sure what the Moderna vote was, but they obviously got a, a favorable vote as well. The FDA reviewed that data, and then it now has emergency use. So what that means is that anyone who receives the product is getting it at their own risk. The FDA has not fully approved this product. Um, and it also, my understanding means that at this time, places should not be mandating the admin or the receival of the vaccine because it's not FDA approved. So a lot of places are offering it, which is great. Um, some places are offering it and then you have to either accept or deny and like sign, yes, I'm accepting or sign, no, I'm denying. So it's an active involvement in that accept or deny process. Um, or some people are just offering it and, you know, in the first go around and you can get it, at it as you wish. In my reading, I do not think employers or hospitals can mandate it um, until it is FDA approved. And I don't know when the FDA approval process will begin. I do know that the original Pfizer study is ongoing for two years. So I'm not sure if they will have to finish out their two-year study before they can go up for FDA approval. Do you know anything about that? Um, I'm not exactly sure like, when they will get FDA approval. I know EUAs are only as good, or they only are important, or they can only be used as long as the emergency is going on. So whenever they define the pandemic is controlled, or I guess it's not a pandemic anymore, then the EUA will go out the door and then they will have to have an FDA approval. But I, there's there's no telling when that will be. But um, yeah, back to the mandating of getting the vaccine. Under EUAs, they can't mandate it. So if, okay. if you are mandated or an employer heavily encourages you with possible repercussions, then that's still mandating. So they could get into some trouble with that. You can only mandate something when it's FDA approved. I don't know about everywhere. I know at Duke, they'll send out an email when your risk category is up for vaccination. And then you can either choose to accept or deny. And if you deny, you don't lose your place. You can come back whenever you feel comfortable with getting it. But they just offer it as soon as the group that you fall in is deemed ready for it. Um, the other thing for this EUA, um, instead of receiving, so normally when we give a vaccine, we have to give you the vaccine information sheet, which is the VIS. Everyone is just a front and back sheet that explains a little bit about the disease state that you're vaccinating against, adverse effects, that kind of thing. Um, so we don't have a VIS for the COVID vaccine, um, but we do, we are required to provide you with the EUA printout. So as of right now, that's an eight-page document. So when you're receiving the COVID vaccine, you should receive this eight-page document. And really, you should receive it before you get the vaccination. You should be able to be given a chance to read it over and ask questions before you receive your vaccine. Um, and again, that goes back to that whole process of informed consent. Um, so that's another difference between the, having an FDA approved versus an EUA or approved under the EUA. I think this would be a good time to transition over to adverse effects. Yes. So most of the adverse effects are pretty benign. They're like injection site pain, joint pain, a little bit of muscle aches, maybe some like flu-like symptoms, but most that I've read about have only lasted a day or two, and they usually come after the second dose. There's always unpredictable adverse effects that can come up. So they have a way to track this, and it's called the VAERS, Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. And there's a website that you can go to for that. There's a phone number you can call. And what's good about this is it can be reported by providers or patients. So anyone who experiences or witnesses an adverse effect can report it here, and we can track it and then get a little bit more data on how the vaccine affects different people and the FDA will continue to analyze it on a rolling basis. And VIRS is for any vaccine. So if you have any reaction to any vaccine ever, you can upload it into VIRS as well. Um, and I know that the, I think it's the CDC has also created um, an app for the COVID vaccine. Anyone who gets it, um, you can 
put it on your phone. And then each day for 14 days after you receive the vaccine, you log into the app and you it has all the adverse effects that are commonly associated with the vaccine. And you can check off which ones you have. Um, and then I think you rate yourself on like how well overall you're feeling that day. Um, and then that is how they're collecting. It's just easier than Veers. Veers is a little bit um, cumbersome to complete the whole everything that you have to fill out. Um, and so that is how they're relying on collecting a lot more information as well for the COVID vaccine. Yeah. And then one other thing I thought was important to mention is the video of the fainting nurse. I'm sure you saw this. Yeah, you watched it, right? Yeah. So if you haven't seen this video of the fainting nurse, anyone who is anti this vaccine on social media has posted this vac this video and is saying, look at this. So I have two thoughts about it. And they're on opposite ends of the spectrum, I guess. So the first thought is, okay, you got a vaccine and then you passed out. That's that's something that happens. I don't really think it's that big of a deal. Um, she got a vaccine quickly after it was put in front of all these microphones. All of these people were recording her. I'm sure there were lights on her. She just didn't feel well. She passed out. That, to me, isn't something that is serious or something that we should worry about. I think that could happen after any vaccine. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, I, some things that I have been seeing or some things that people have been saying is that you know, fainting is probably not associated with the vaccine. And they're kind of saying there's a whole like, you know, believe people that when they say that there's issues associated with vaccines, there's a lot of times it's just brushed under the rug or they say that it's not associated with the vaccine. And to me, that's kind of BS. Like, obviously, this nurse would not have passed out if she did not receive this vaccine. So it's clearly tied to the vaccine. Yeah. So no, that's not a big deal. But we shouldn't be denying it and saying that it's not related to the vaccine. If she didn't receive the vaccine, she wouldn't have 17 minutes later, she wouldn't have been on the ground. I got hep A and B on the same day. Okay. I passed out. You did? Yeah. I mean, some people, and she even said in the video, like, it's pretty common for her to pass out. It's nothing out of the ordinary, which some people just react that way. So I don't think it's, like you said, I don't think we should try and deny it and say the vaccine didn't cause it. But at the same time, I don't think it's that big of a deal. I don't think it's something for anti-vaxxers to podium upon. And No. All right. So next question is when will I get my vaccine? So they, they have different phases. Uh, I think it's phase 1A, 1B, 2, 3, and 4. We're in phase 1 right now. Yeah. Oh, and it's – okay. Let's back up. It's the phases all occur on a state level. So the vaccine is actually distributed from the federal government to the states and the federal government decides how many each state gets. And then the states within themselves decide if it's how many each county is going to get or the health departments or the hospitals, they decide on a state by state basis. So if you're in a separate, different state, you may be in a different phase than what we are in. We're in 1A right now in North Carolina, soon to be transitioning over to 1B. So 1A and 1B is frontline healthcare workers and then healthcare workers and long-term care, people that live in a long-term care facility, a nursing home, a convalescent home, that kind of thing. And then phase two will be essential workers that are not healthcare related. So that would be like teachers, people that work in restaurants, people that work in a businesses that are deemed to be essential. They will get it in phase two, as well as people who have lots of comorbidities that put them at great incre greatly increased risk for serious complications of COVID. And then it will goes down from there to people that are older. And then it will go, you know, 65 plus with a comorbidity. Um, and then it just keeps trickling down. And if you're just like a youngish, healthy person, you probably won't have access to the vaccine until my guess is going to be summer. Yeah. And I think this should give people a little bit of comfort to know that most people outside of the healthcare realm are usually the ones that are a little bit more hesitant from what I've gathered to get this vaccine. So they say that they're going to wait, which they're going to have to wait anyways because yep. they don't fall within 
those first few phases of people who are more on the front lines and see COVID patients on a regular basis. So there'll, there'll be more data and they'll have a little bit better understanding of some of the adverse effects associated with the vaccine when it comes time for the general population. And you can, you should, I think, feel a little bit more comfortable with the fact that people who are in the healthcare profession that are actually going to be the ones like delving deep into the literature and really understanding like everything about the studies and how they set up the studies and what they gathered and with the data are the ones that are like, yes, give it to me. Yeah. Seeing all of my friends get it and all of the people in the healthcare field that I respect getting it is also just further reiterating like that this is a safe vaccine. And, and I mean, I've had friends, you know, friends that work in, you know, a more acute setting in the hospital who've gotten it and have like posted on Facebook every day, like day two after my vaccine and like my arm is sore, but overall I feel fine. And I think like just seeing those updates are nice as well. I think that's the big thing that changed my mind was talking to all of the pharmacists and a few of the other faculty at Duke and seeing how ready they were to get the vaccine and how they were advocating it. So that kind of swayed me over to think like, these people know a lot more than I do and they're really confident about the vaccine. So I'm right. more comfortable with it. So traditional vaccine development can take sometimes up to 15 years, depending on how much research they do, how much goes into it. And the bulk of that is within the clinical trials, actually. Yes. Usually three trials, they test for safety, efficacy, and effectiveness with this like study population getting bigger with each uh, different phase. And usually they run around a year or two years, sometimes three, depends on what exactly they're studying. And then once they have all the data gathered together, they submit it and it gets reviewed, which can take another year or two. And then once it's approved, they start production. So that's why it, it's such a long process. What's been able to happen with the COVID vaccine development, they already had data from SARS-CoV-1 and MERS-CoV from 2003 and 2012 that they did research on, but they didn't cause as much of a problem as the SARS-CoV-2 virus did. So a lot of the research and development on those vaccines kind of went to the wayside because there wasn't as much interest and the resources weren't allocated to it. So they kind of had a bit of a base to go off of when they started this vaccine development. And what they also did to streamline things was they ran the phases parallel with each other. So they tested for safety and efficacy together with phase one and two trials. And then they had some phase two and three trials that were also run together. So they shrunk the, like, the important parts of the clinical trial as much as they need for an EUA into months instead of years. And then also during the phase three trials, they began to produce vaccines for people who were at risk. And then with the EUA and the FDA, they submit data on a rolling basis. And then it gets looked at each and every day and it gets updated each and every day. So that, that's a way that they shortened the development time period, but still held the safety and efficacy that we would expect from an FDA approval. And the reason that they don't have an FDA approval yet is because they don't have that long-term data, but that is going to come sometime in the next year or two. It's, it's really hard to say, but I don't think they forewent any safety measures for this. And I feel pretty confident in I have a couple comments to go off of what you just said. Like, great overview. Um, the first thing with, with what you said about the, which is the most important thing, because I know a lot of people have said this, with the safety data and us only having two or three months of large clinical trial safety data, 95 to 100%, I'll say 95 just to be safe, of adverse effects associated with vaccination occur within six weeks of receiving the vaccine. The only common adverse effect that we know about that occurs in a longer, like six to eight week time period is Guillain-Barre. Guillain-Barre is an autoimmune disease that attacks your, what's when your body attacks the nervous system um, and it causes like flaccid paralysis. Very rare, but it does occur. And so because of that, they, the trials did have to study people for two months um, and before they could do the EUA. 
And so most of the adverse effects that we would be worried about with a vaccine would occur in that time frame, and we already have data in that time frame. I know some people are worried about the autoimmune, like if you have an autoimmune condition, can it elicit some sort of autoimmune response? Marcus and I were talking about this a little bit. It is something that they are, you know, going to keep looking at. Um, if you do have an autoimmune disease, the recommendation at this time is to make an informed decision with your healthcare provider. Um, they're not saying get it. They're not saying don't get it. Probably, you know, if you have an autoimmune disease and you're immunosuppressed, it's more risky for you to get COVID. Um, but obviously the vaccine does have, it can have risks as well. So that's something that you'd have to decide on a case by case basis. There, I said I had three things to say. I forgot the second one, but the third thing that I'm going to say, um, you said one of the phases that makes it longer until it can go to development is the production of the vaccine. And I thought this was really interesting. So if you know anything about the Pfizer vaccine, um, it sucks for healthcare providers in the way that it has to be distributed, stored, prepared, and administered um, because it has to be stored at a really, really cold temperature. Uh, it only can stay in the refrigerator for six hours. Um, it only can stay in a syringe for an hour. So and after you reconstitute the vial, it's only good for six hours, right? Uh, if you take it straight from the freezer and put it in the refrigerator, it's good for five days. If you don't, dilute it. Oh, right. So in the fridge, five days, and then once it's reconstituted, six hours. So all of that is just confusing and not the best. But the reason that that is, is because for them to have streamlined that process or maybe given us a vaccine that was already pre-mixed or didn't have to stay at that cold of a temperature or didn't have to be 0.3 mLs. Another thing that grinds my gears because every other vaccine is 0.5 mLs and this one's 0.3. That would have taken a lot of more research and that would have delayed the time for them to get the vaccine to the market. So that's why you know we have to deal with all of that right now because that was one of the processes that was expedited. And yes, it's annoying to us, but it's not making it more risky for the for someone who's receiving it. So let's talk about the mRNA technology. So it is a, it's, I shouldn't say it's a new technology. It's a new technology to actually come to market and be a vaccine um, that we have to be administered to people. mRNA technology has been under research for 30 years about. And the thing that's so difficult about an mRNA vaccine is that mRNA is quickly degraded once it gets into your body. And so it is really difficult for that to have some sort of appreciable effect once it gets into us. So what they did differently for the COVID vaccine was they took the mRNA and they put it inside a lipid particle and that protected it long enough that it could actually get into our muscle and then elicit an immune response. So let's talk about how that immune response happens. It's actually really cool. You have DNA, then you have RNA, and then you have proteins. So the RNA of the virus um, is a code of different proteins. So what we are doing is extracting out one of those proteins, one single one, and it is the protein that codes for the spike. So if you know anything about the COVID vaccine, you've probably heard that it's a, it has spikes on the surface. So if you think about like the crown, um, that's on the outside of the virus, and that's how it sticks to our different organs, and that's how it gets into our body. So what the virus or what the vaccine is doing is it's um, injecting the protein into or the RNA into our body that codes for that protein that creates that spike. So once our body sees that and starts creating cells that are expressing that spike protein, they body, the immune system is like, hey, this is weird. I don't know what this is. I don't like it. Let me get rid of it. And what the way that it gets rid of it is it creates antibodies against it. So then that activates the immune response, creates antibodies against that protein, the spike protein. And then if we see that spike protein again in the future, we already know how to make those antibodies and they become, they come a lot more quickly. It's really cool. A lot of vaccines that we receive are just going to already be the virus that's inactivated or dead um, or a portion of the virus. But this is just a, the protein um, that makes the spike. And the reason that it's so cool is because if the virus ends up mutating, like we have seen in the UK, 
we still should be able to create protection against the mutated virus because it's still going to have those spikes to be able to adhere. And if it mutates in a way that it doesn't have those spikes, then it actually ends up becoming less virulent because the spikes are the way that it gets into our body. And if we don't have the spikes, then it can't get into the body. And because you're having the immune response to the spike protein that's being created because of the vaccine, um, that's why you get kind of that flu-like symptoms common with the vaccine because your immune system is ramping up to fight that um, foreign antigen. And that's why you get those flu-like symptoms. I want to say one other thing that I think is really cool about this vaccine. And the vaccine, if you look at the ingredients, they're very minimal in comparison to a lot of other vaccines. I'm not going to go into like what is in all's in there, but I would like to say that there are no preservatives in the vaccine at all. So mercury is a preservative that a lot of people are really worried about. And then also aluminum is used as a preservative a lot, not in there, which is another reason why it has to stay so cold and then only can stay in the fridge for a few days. And then there are also no adjuvants in the vaccine. So an adjuvant is something that is usually attached onto the virus um, before it, it, when it's made in the vaccine, before it's injected, so that it's basically a bigger particle, so your body more easily recognizes it as foreign. And people who have bad reactions to vaccines, a lot of times will have bad reactions to the adjuvants or the preservatives, and those are not in here. So that's great. I hope that if they do any sort of reformulation of it, they leave it that way um, because that makes me feel a lot better about the ingredients in it. It's basically just the the mRNA, the lipids, and then like sucrose and a few other little yeah. things. It's diluted with normal saline and they specifically say on the, it's not the package insert, but it's like the, but it says specifically do not use any normal saline that has preservatives in it. So that's still like on the same page with no preservatives. And there was one more thing. Oh, what you said about how mRNA is degraded fast. So I feel like a question that a lot of people would have is if you're injecting genetic material into the body, is there a chance that it could be incorporated into the genome of your cells? It, not with mRNA. It, it lasts just long enough to be translated and converted into the spike protein. But then after that, it's degraded. And right. So, do you want to talk about the? You probably have seen it a little more. I haven't actually seen the vaccine in person. Um, I don't know if you've seen it at Duke. But do you want to talk about the how it's distributed, stored, and dosed? Yeah. So um, it comes in a multi-dose vial. It's reconned with, or not reconned. It's diluted with 1.8 mLs of normal saline. So a dose is 0.3 mLs. So if you did the math, you would think that there would be six doses. And I've seen a lot of like, articles and stuff saying there's an extra dose in there, da 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 da. But what people don't account for is the needle hub volume. So there's no way that you would actually be able to get six doses out of it. You might be able to take a half a dose from one vial and combine it with a half a dose of another vial, but if there is an extra, if there ends up being an extra dose in there, the FDA did release a statement saying if you can get a full extra dose out of that vial, use the extra dose because we want to be able to immunize as many people as possible. It has to go to temperature before it's diluted. So you can do that two ways. You can either put it in the refrigerator. If you get like a full package and put that in the refrigerator and you plan on going through a lot, of vials, um, then that's one way to do it. It takes like two to three hours to, to thaw that way. But at room temperature, one vial takes like 30 minutes. It's really weird how they say it, and I don't know how their like math works. So it takes 30 minutes to thaw, and then it says once it's thawed, it can remain undiluted at room temperature for two hours. Once it's diluted, it must be used within six hours. So I don't know if that's like cumulative number or if it's fridge time to discard time is six hours like i have really no idea. it seems like once you are ready to use it like there's only six doses in there at this point we're just gonna i feel like most times they're just gonna yeah. use all six like there's enough people right now that it's just like boom 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 
And they say once you thaw it, you can't refreeze it. They probably just because they haven't studied it. Yeah. So they don't know if it's still good. What we're explaining for the is the Pfizer vaccine storage and all of that. Um, and then we will compare that when we get to the Moderna vaccine. Um, so for the Pfizer vaccine, you get dose one, and then three weeks later or 21 days later, you receive dose two. So it's day zero and day 21. So it is a two dose series. I know another question that people are going to ask is how long does that last for? Do we need a booster? How long am I going to have be immune to the vaccine? And yeah, we don't know. That's something that we don't know. That's another problem with a short trial. Um, they haven't been able to follow people long enough to know the answer to that. But we know as of right now, we know you need one. And then 21 days later, you need another one. And then right now you're good. Do we know if you need a booster? We don't. So let's talk, I want to talk a little bit briefly. I put a lot of information here on the trial. I will not nerd out and say it all. But the biggest thing that I want to say is that there were, I'll give you a little bit of an overview of who was in the trial and what they did. So there was 44,000 people in the trial and they were split in half. So half in the placebo group, half in the vaccine group. They did a pretty good job of ensuring diversity within the trial. So if you know anything about clinical trials, they're pretty traditionally 95% of white people, um, but they did a better job of having more diversity. So we had 82% white, 10% black, 4% Asian, for, uh, 45% reported at least one comorbidity, which was like hypertension, diabetes, obesity was the most common one that was reported. 35% of people were obese. And you had an even mix of all of that between each group. Then what they did was they gave you a shot. So you don't know if it was blinded. So you don't know if you received the SARS-CoV-2 in your arm or if you received placebo. 21 days later, you came back, you got your second dose. And then they just put you out in the world and said, so social distance, wear a mask, don't gather in groups, live your life. If you returned to your doctor with symptoms of COVID, they tested you for COVID, and if you were positive, you were considered to be positive, and then they counted how many people that happened to. Again, there was 44,000 people in the trial. From seven days after your second dose, which is when you're considered to be fully immune, the number of people that ended up with COVID was nine in the vaccine group, and 169 in the placebo group, which is a 94.6% efficacy. So that, I mean, That's you don't get much better than that for efficacy. Not for a vaccine, especially when they've just developed. No, think about the flu vaccine. Some years we get like 10%, some years 30. Horrible. This is crazy good. Yeah. I was talking to one of our colleagues Chuck Carter, Dr. Carter, yeah. um, and he said originally the they were looking at a 50% marker. So if your vaccine was 50% effective, that was originally what they were going to use as the mark for approval. I mean, we were just talking casually about this. This is not his professional opinion, but he said he thinks now, you know, that Moderna and Pfizer both have 95% efficacy. If somebody comes in with 50% efficacy, there's no way they're going to get approved. Like, why would they? The only way that I can think is if like storage was a big issue. Like if they, if a vaccine came along and it had like, maybe not 50, maybe like 75% efficacy and it could be stored in the refrigerator for six months. Things we don't know as at this time. We don't know about asymptomatic positives because people were not tested routinely throughout the trial. They were only tested if they presented with symptoms. And we do not know about transmission. So this is a big sticking point for a lot of people. We don't know if you receive the vaccine, if it reduces your risk of transmitting COVID to someone else. In theory, if I'm not getting it, if it reduces my likelihood of getting COVID by 95%, there's a 95% less chance that I'm going to transmit it to you because I don't have it. I mean, that wasn't studied, so we can't say that with certainty. But if you think about it logically, it seems like it should reduce transmission. And that's one thing that this kind of ties. I think this might be better to say at the end, but I'm going to say it now just in case. So even after people get the vaccine, the three W's are still going to be critically important. So wearing a mask, washing your hands, and social distancing. I think those will be around for at least halfway into next year. 
Yeah. So yeah, the recommendation is to continue to wear a mask after just because we don't know. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about safety, like adverse effects that people may experience? Yeah. So the most common adverse effects with the vaccine are local reactions, which is common with most vaccines. So you have some pain, redness and swelling. Um, you can have like some mild systemic reaction that maybe would like mimic the cold or something like that, but they're pretty benign in nature. They have seen that the systemic reactions are worse with the second dose. That's what I've heard most from people. There's one person that she was friends with um, someone that I spoke with at Duke and she got it and said that she like didn't want to get out of for two days. Like she felt mm. terrible, but it was after the second dose and it only lasted two days. So yeah. So it's usually like headache, muscle pain, yeah. feeling fever. You can get a fever, chills, that kind of thing. So those are more common um, and more common after the second dose, yeah. as Marcus said. These are side effects that aren't uncommon to other vaccines. Correct. So it's kind of to be expected when you stick a foreign object into someone's skin and inject foreign material. I mean, you yep. kind of expect And it shows that your immune system is doing something. If you don't have any side effects, you might need to get checked out. <laughs> What's going on with your immune system? Exactly. So there were four reports of Bell's palsy in the Pfizer study in the placebo or in the vaccine group and zero in the placebo group. What they said was, uh, and Bell's palsy, sorry for those of you that don't know, is facial drooping um, usually occurs on one side of the face. They say in the FDA report that they submitted, they're not classifying Bell's palsy as a serious adverse effect. If you ask me, I think it's pretty serious. Yeah. Um, and they say that it's occurred at like a normal rate. It's not greater than what would be expected in a population of 20,000 people. But I do think the fact that there were four in the drug group and zero in the placebo is something else that we should keep an eye on. Yeah. And then, of course, we need to talk about the allergic reactions. So there were actually no, so anaphylactic reactions, which is swelling in your throat, and that makes it difficult to breathe and requires very rapid emergency intervention. So there were no cases of anaphylaxis in the study. And then the very first day, which everyone probably heard about this, the when the vaccine was given in the UK, they were first because they don't have an FDA to go through. There were two cases of anaphylaxis of two healthcare workers that had a previous history of allergic reactions. Subsequently, once the FDA approved our vaccine, there were two cases of anaphylaxis at the same clinic in Alaska, which I found to be very interesting, maybe some sort of genetic component to it. And then subsequently there, subsequently there were two more. So as of right now, there are six cases that were reported to the FDA of anaphylaxis. We don't know if there were more that have not yet been reported. There may be a delay. And the thought is that it is related to the polyethylene glycol or PEG that is in the vaccine. Um, so they, the thought is that the allergic reaction is to PEG. They do not know for sure. This is something that is continuing to be investigated. Um, I did read an article today that they said that they may have underestimated the incidence of PEG reactions, sorry, allergic reactions in people in the U.S. Um, and so they're trying to gather some people that have an allergic reaction to allergic history to do a little study on them and see what happens with the COVID vaccine when they get it. Recommendation at this time, if you live in the UK and you have an allergic history, meaning that you're so allergic to something that you carry an EpiPen, they're saying hold off on the vaccine until we can get more info. In the US, they're kind of saying, you know, if you have an allergic reaction to an injectable thing, so an injectable medication or vaccine, you probably should hold off. But if you have an allergic history in general to maybe like peanuts or bee stings, you probably can get it, but talk to your healthcare provider. And the also important thing is if you have an allergic history and you're getting the vaccine, you need to stay, stick around for longer. Um, so usually it's like 15 to 20 minutes after that we need to watch you. But for people with an allergic history, we need to watch you for at least 30 minutes. So another thing that I saw um, on 
a concern of people was about pregnancy. And there was a thing that was going around um, on social media or maybe just on the internet in general about possibly having some sort of infertility component with the vaccine. And the reason that that was a question is because the protein that codes for the development of placentas in mammals is kind of similar to the protein that codes for the spike protein uh, that makes SARS-CoV-2. Um, and so they were saying, if we have antibodies against this spike protein for SARS-CoV-2, are you creating antibodies against this essential protein that we need to create a placenta in women? And the answer, as we know of it right now, is very most likely no, because the coding is not similar enough. It's about, they have an overlap of about five to six proteins, but it's not so similar that just a very small modification can cause that big, huge thing. They did not purposely enroll any pregnant women in the trials at this time. Um, they did pregnancy test everyone Pfizer in the Pfizer study before enrolling them, but 23 pregnant women still ended up in the study. They ended up with 12 people and 12 pregnant women in the vaccine group and 11 in the placebo group. Um, all 12 in the vaccine group are still pregnant and fine. There was one miscarriage in the placebo group. So they're following them. And ACOG, um, which is American Colleges of Obstetrics and Gynecology, their stance is being pregnant makes you high risk for COVID. So you should probably get the vaccine. We're not issuing a blanket statement saying get it or don't get it, but we are, you know, recommending it's probably a good idea, but definitely talk to your healthcare provider, weigh what's right for you. And it does, it's not an absolute yes, and it's not an absolute contraindication. I think that goes for anytime anything related to pregnancy comes up for me, I would just defer talk to your doctor because they would know more for your specific subcategory right now like the data isn't as concrete as i would like it you don't have enough yeah anything else about pfizer vaccine that we missed so, so like in my opinion this isn't like the law this isn't how it's going to be um but i think the pfizer vaccine will go to larger institutes like big hospitals and places that can accommodate the the freezer temperatures but i know unc got the moderna vaccine because they were contracted in the trial with them but outside of that, I think Moderna would probably go to retail pharmacies. Retail pharmacies for the long-term care, they're getting the Moderna vaccine. There's no way we can use the Pfizer vaccine in mass clinics in a long-term care. Like, we can't bring a refrigerator with us. We can't ensure. That would be a mess. Yeah. And the Moderna vaccine is pretty much the exact same thing as the Pfizer vaccine as far as mechanism and um how it works in the body and how it was developed the difference comes in uh the dosing regimen so instead of with the pfizer being zero and 21 days the moderna vaccine is zero and 28 days so separated by a little bit longer time but that's just the study parameters that they came up with and got good evidence on and another one is the storage so moderna can be stored in a normal freezer for six months. It can be stored in the refrigerator for 30 days. And then at room temperature, it can be stored for 12 hours. So it's a little bit more stable and a little bit more appropriate for places who don't have the capabilities of buying an expensive freezer and allocating a room just for that. And it doesn't have to be mixed. Yeah. Also, that that's a I think that's a pretty overlooked one because that's just one more step that could cause problems and the um, moderna vaccine is the mrna vaccine just like the pfizer vaccine so you're going to see the same technology the same it works the same way the efficacy is very similar it was around 94 percent to 95 percent effective and then the side effects were very similar as well one thing that i want to point out is that so lymph adenopathy is swelling of your lymph nodes, and it is common after receiving a vaccine. Um, 
it's not a big deal, but I was looking at the differences between the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine this morning, just because I was trying to think through like what some patients may ask and you know, what, what's the difference between these? Which one should I get? And the really the only thing that I saw that was different was the incidence of lymph lymph adenopathy in the trials. So in the Pfizer group, it was 0.3%. And in the Moderna study, it was 21%. And I was like, that's so different. Like, what's the deal? I elicited the question in the pharmacist for COVID group. And someone said, you know, maybe they defined lymph adenopathy differently within each study. And um, there's really not that much information about it in the Pfizer data that I was looking through. But in the Moderna data, it does like look at just general and then also like the grade three, um, which is a more severe lymph adenopathy. And if you look at just the grade three, the incidence is going to be around like 0. 0.4 to 0.5%, which mirrors much more closely to the Pfizer vaccine. So I'm going to assume that the Pfizer study just reported on grade three, um, and not just like general any inflammation. And another thing that makes me think um, that as well is that in the Moderna vaccine, they had like six or 7% of people report lymph adenopathy in the placebo group. So it probably was just like very general, um, any kind of swelling versus like the more severe. And I think if you're looking at the more severe, it's going to probably be similar between the groups. I think that's a really good uh, situation that goes to show you that you can't always take the face value of a study. Because if someone were to read just the first part that you presented, they'd be like, boom, Moderna is the worst side effect. But right. it really does come down to how it was executed for you to be able to trust that information. You really need to know the background on how and why it's being presented. And another reason why it's important to ask questions and get all the information. All right, so the other vaccine that we are going to talk about today just very briefly is the AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, and the reason that we are bringing this up is because it's probably the next one that's going to go up for EUA. Um, it is not up yet, it is still in trials. And I am not really as familiar with it. It's a completely different mechanism. Everything is different about it. So Marcus is going to tell you a little bit about what he knows about the AstraZeneca vaccine. Yeah, I think um, I was reading something earlier today, and it was saying that the EUA for the AstraZeneca vaccine is probably going to be around February. So that okay, that's kind of what they're shooting for. But um, it could be sooner, it could be later. We don't really know yet. The AstraZeneca virus—they took a chimpanzee adenovirus, which is the virus that causes the common cold, and they altered the, the DNA inside of it. So they removed the portion of DNA that codes for replication, and then they replaced that with DNA that codes for the spike protein. The reason that they chose a chimpanzee adenovirus, which I was really impressed and kind of shocked as to why they did it, but the human body won't really elicit an immune response to chimpanzee adenovirus. I don't know exactly why. That's a, a pretty in-depth immunologic question that I don't have the answer to, but that's what they did, and um, it seems to be working. So what happens when you get injected with this chimpanzee adenovirus with um, a little bit of COVID spike protein DNA sprinkled inside is your body takes it and this is where it's a little bit different. The DNA is actually taken into the nucleus, but it's not incorporated into the genome. So there's no need to worry about that. The nucleus of the person's yeah. cells? Mm -hmm. Okay. So then it's transcribed to mRNA, which is then exported to the cytoplasm. And it pretty much puts you in the same spot as the other two vaccines. So you have mRNA that is then taken and converted to DNA to the spike protein, and then your body can elicit an immune response to that. So it works a little bit different from the front end, but about halfway through, once you get to mRNA, it's pretty much like the same mechanism overall. And one thing that's, well, I guess it's not unique to the AstraZeneca because it doesn't apply to it, but just the mRNA itself, what makes that so 
quick to develop is you don't have to grow any virus. You can just take the, the sequence and inject that directly. So that's why they were also able to streamline those a little bit faster than anything else, in my opinion. So one thing that was funny about the AstraZeneca vaccine was the half dose like error that they made. That turned out to be great. So originally it was supposed to be two doses that were the same. I don't, like I said, I'm not really that familiar with it. Two doses that were the same volume. Well, they did that for the majority of the people in the trial, but this one site of the trial made a mistake. And the first dose that everyone received was just a half dose. So they got 50% of the liquid. Well, in the regular full dose group, it was 60% effective, which is crappy compared to our Pfizer and Moderna vaccines that are giving us 95%. And then in this random group of this one place where they did the oops thing, it came out to be 90% effective. So when they pulled all the data, it looks like it's 70% effective, but only because of that one site that messed up and had like a really high effectiveness. I'm assuming, I don't know, but I'm assuming they're studying the half dose than the full dose. Yeah. More uh, now. Phase two, they call it prime boost. That's like the protocol now. Basically, it's a half dose, full dose. And that's what they're using in the phase two trials. So all of the approval that they get will be with this like prime boost protocol. Funny that the mistake became the actual thing. I'm just confused of how do you make that mistake for everybody? I could, I mean, one person one thing but everyone on the first dose apparently they were not trained properly at that one clinic (laughs) i would hope that was the excuse all right so any final thoughts about the vaccine um this this isn't about the vaccine this is about actually covid what's interesting to me like you know remdesivir is what they use for treatment but it actually doesn't have any like great evidence it's just like more management and I think dexamethasone has better evidence than remdesivir. I'm going to say one, my final piece in my, in our wrap up here, my final thought is always to do everything you can to keep yourself as healthy as possible. So that if you do end up coming in contact with someone with coronavirus, your immune system is ready to fight the coronavirus. So we know with certainty that people that have metabolic disease, which would be obesity, high insulin level, diabetes, hypertension, not improper lipids, they are at increased risk to die if or have serious complications of coronavirus. So try your best to keep yourself as healthy as possible because you are going to have better outcomes if you do. And then you I mean if you come end up getting it you there's less likelihood that you'll go in the hospital and less likelihood that you'll die i 100 percent agree with that and i think i'm gonna just ditto that as my closing statement and my helpful tip of the week because that that kind of ties back to like why we're here in the first place is just to help you guys be as healthy as possible mm-hmm. and turns out it'll help you all along the way <laughs>